This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Good morning. Sometimes you know it. Uh, maybe it uh, seems uh, uh, quite artificial, but uh, it, it's our actual life. And I think the more we practice, the more the uh, kind of uh, boundary between our time of practice and our what we might think of as our, our ordinary life, more of that is erased. sense of, um, you might say, uh, a continuity of discontinuity. Uh, since we know that the, the uh, person doesn't actually persist moment to moment, So to speak, someone is there. And that continuity of this continuity doesn't amount to a a real person. This is Buddha's teaching. But, you know, we, we know, we say, someone's there. And how you, how we um, relate to or consider that someone structures the whole world. And in our, uh, our uh, sutra reading uh, that we do on, on Thursday evening, the Lankavatara Sutra that we've been reading, uh, we've seen how often the, uh, this concept, this, 
the Sanskrit expression satkaya dushti, meaning having a uh, conviction of the existence of a persistent person. We've seen how important that is in the sutra and how often the Buddha uh, shines light on that. And uh, encourages us to notice how that is like the underpinning of practically everything. And it's so important that it's the first in the traditional list of ten fetters, ten things that bind us. It's number one is to be convinced that there is an individual enduring person. And this is, this is how, this is the sense in which we can say, uh, or for instance, as a Katagiri Yoshi said, the universe is born with you and dies with you. Because each person carries a universe with him or her or them. And the pin of that is satkaya dhrishtis, the deep, deep conviction that I'm here and the rest of the universe is out there. Buddha Dharma teaches us how to live in such a way that that really very, very deep conviction gets eroded over time. At a point where um, we, we can be said to slip free of it. I was, I was uh, quite encouraged uh, after a number of years to, to notice that my, my uh, trust in my unique individual existence had been eroded to the point where there was always room for some doubt about how, oh, I'm separate from that person. And whenever that feeling would come up, there's some doubt, it's like, wait, am I? What do I base that on? How is that so when in practice, in practice, my sense of my life somehow extends beyond my body, beyond where I can reach. And in fact, one is kind of at first beckoned and then eventually forced to the sense that actually 
those lives flow into and out of one another endlessly. Practicing Buddha Dharma makes it possible for us uh, to uh, to avoid the uh, kind of the uh, pitfall of trying deliberately to get rid of uh, this person who I think is here, for instance to slaughter the ego the way, well, some perhaps misguided approaches to practice have uh, seemed to suggest. If you attempt to um, surgically remove your own ego, as people sometimes do, that project is under the control of that ego. So it's really good to avoid that, that trap. And practice makes that possible by bit by bit eroding our grip on wrong view eroding our, as uh, my friend Professor Thurman calls it, our misknowledge. <clears throat> watching a, uh, a YouTube video and this um, very accomplished young man who's a martial artist uh, was addressing the question of which martial art is the best and he said he used to worry about that but then you know, as he encountered various teachings and teachers his whole family was kind of a martial arts family. So all of the kids and the parents were very engaged in that. And he said, uh, so it's kind of like you do get the sense that you're sort of climbing a mountain. And he says, but the higher you get, so to speak, the more all of those paths seem to be converging somewhere in the mist. So if your path, our path, whatever it is, has a heart, then you don't have to worry about, well, maybe that path over there is better. So you will be ascending the same mountain. And of course, 
in Zen, we also get to say, no mountain, no ascent, no descent. Stay right where you are. Put your hands up. Oh, no, no. Put your hands down in your lap. <laughs> Still, after so many years, it still strikes me as peculiar to find myself not so much wearing a dress, which I always wanted to as a kid, but wearing Japanese clothes, or Chinese clothes in this case. And um, this uh, inspired me to wonder, how is it that Westerners got started to get into this Eastern stuff. I've uh, been watching yet another YouTube video series. This one by a very interesting character, a, a uh, Anglican clergyman, who did a series of videos concerning uh, the evolution of religiosity in the West. And uh, recently, he's been talking about uh, how in the late 17th and in the 18th century, uh, people's uh, certainty about the uh, picture of the universe that spiritual faith had presented them with began to be eroded. And was little by little replaced by um, the sense that what people considered physical reality and its various behaviors and qualities would provide the ground, the bedrock for people to understand how they are in the world. So in the West, anyone who has, has uh, grown up in the last, I don't know, more than half a century has grown up with this sense that actual reality is accessed through purely empirical means. So at some point, maybe in the late 19th century, some, uh, some mostly some English people who, who had also grown up in that era and who were just coming into the era where even psychology was beginning to be presented as a, a relentlessly empirical pursuit. Uh, came to the conclusion that there was a science in Asia that fit the bill perfectly, and this science was, well, Buddhism. 
and that Buddha was a great scientist. And that uh, Buddha was free of the burden of received faith and also taught a, a purely empirical approach. So then uh, some Westerners decided that uh, Buddhism, Buddha Dharma, allows us to be empiricists of the spirit. And never mind all that religious stuff. And more recently, uh, some um, of our Western uh, Buddhist scholars have pointed out that that's actually not quite right. And that uh, Buddhism, as it's known in its uh, in the countries where it has deep roots and long cultivation is actually quite religious. So, uh, consequently, we have, you know, we make offerings, we bow, we chant, we put on a dress, We have these gestures that are almost unknown in the West. As you know, some Westerners and counting Eastern cultures made a big deal about bowing. It's like, the Englishman bows to no man. And this caused a bit of trouble from time to time. So, while it's true that uh, Buddha was a skilled empiricist, the context of his spirituality is uh, as vast and mysteriously religious as any So he, he did say, uh, if you, uh, if you study very carefully your own body-mind, you will eventually find the path to freedom. To many, this sounded like, well, it's just that's what, the, that's what scientists do in the laboratory, you know, just careful observation and measurement. And look, look, see the, some of these uh, Buddhists, they have these long lists of like, you know, states of mind and so forth. It's just, it's just like science. Again, that's not quite right. Buddha said that, uh, yes, this uh, 
empirical approach, this study of the self, uh, will benefit you greatly. But there is a marga, to use the Sanskrit word, there is a path. So you could say, well, I'm just going to retire to my own little laboratory and study my body-mind and I will achieve liberation. And while that's not impossible, uh, it's good to remember that there are actually three treasures. There are three jewels. There's Buddha, his teaching, and a vast community of uh, beings uh, to practice with and to encounter and to benefit and to be benefited by. So, while to study the self is the way that the satkaya dhrishti, the, the grip on the conviction that there is a separate and enduring person, that's how that grip is released. find it uh, helpful uh, to have a, uh, a wider context than just sitting in your own laboratory. <coughs> you'll be able to uh, join uh, the good Dr. Jung, who, as I think I said, uh, he was asked, do you, do you believe in God? He paused a moment and then said, I don't need to believe. I know. And this uh, knowing uh, goes way beyond a kind of uh, any kind of uh, catalog of facts.
it, uh, it goes from the top of the head to the tips of the toes and beyond. Satkaya drishti, even the conviction of a self, has to give way. Sitting here together like this is to cultivate the Buddha way. And uh, you will be amazed, or maybe you already are, at how the, uh, somebody said. Uh, The universe, the body, mind, self, and other. As somebody said, uh, it's like uh, like a gourd in the water. You push on it; it spins in the sunlight. It has no definite shape. our life. So, whether that's religion or not, I don't know, but I'm pretty grateful for whatever it is. Any questions today? Oh, yes. Thanks for bringing the subject up. Sometimes think about it myself, and while you were talking, I, you know, this <clears throat> personality thing. Uh, while you were talking, I was thinking of it in terms of uh, <clears throat> tenancy. When I, Personality has a certain tendency over this uh, skin bag, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually habits. Uh, yeah. yeah, and eventually uh, the skin bag is going to disintegrate and fall apart. Sure enough. And uh, so where's the uh, tenant go? And uh, I can't come up with much of an answer for that one, but uh, well, there isn't actually a tenant. That's kind of a thing. <laughs> he thinks he's a tenant. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, 
I'll be 70 this year, and I tend to think about these things more because I've seen what happens. Uh, like my next door neighbor some months ago suddenly died. He was alone, he had no family. And I remember uh, what happened was, uh, you know, the, basically the system takes over and uh, an administrator says, okay, back up the dump truck, get all this stuff out of here and yeah. dump it, you know? Yeah. And actually, I don't want to leave that to my my husband, so I, you know, I've been working on getting the clutter out of my house because I don't want to yeah. leave him with the after effects of this skin bag. Yeah, I, I need to do that too. <laughs> Thank you for the reminder. Not that I have a husband, but I don't want to leave Poor Harvest Street with my mess, so. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, there's all these pictures of, oh, this is First Communion and all this other stuff. Right. So I'm uh, going through all of this, I'll leave with my brother and so on. And it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that person who isn't there <laughs> it's, requires it's a, a lot of maintenance. Yeah. Right. Anyhow, just exactly. thought I'd share that with you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yes. Uh, I've been thinking about um, kind of what you were saying about different paths leading to the same place <laughs> and how um, I also listen to the Robert Thurman podcast and he talks about, uh, I think he's mentioned a few times how the Dalai Lama says that people should just stick with their religion that they're born into mm -hmm. and doesn't encourage people to become Buddhists. Right. Um, and I, that kind of struck me and <laughs> I've been thinking about that, trying to understand what he is getting at with that. And, um, like for me, I think uh, I was raised Catholic and, and um, there wasn't, uh, I think there, there were a lot of things in Catholicism that uh, were misleading, I think, to, as to the nature of reality and mm -hmm. existence. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I guess I don't, I don't quite understand how you can reconcile, like for example, the belief in a soul and an eternal soul and, mm -hmm. and that it will go to heaven or hell or limbo or whatever <laughs> after death and um, like those kinds of things with uh, the idea that you can, you can stick with that religion and still have a realization of the mm -hmm. truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, most uh, faiths, including Buddhism, uh, submit to some degree or other of what the Hindus call shruti, which means they become a received faith. And all you get is the principles handed to you, and you're expected to believe them and abide by them. So uh, this uh, tends to obscure any marga that might be present, any path that's actually present. And uh, I had the same experience as you. Um, it took me quite a while to discover, oh, there actually is a marga in Christianity. And you actually kind of need someone to tell you about that. And if, that, if no one's available, then you're stuck with shruti, just what was received. You know? And all you have is what I 
started to call it conventional pieties, you know, say your prayers, go to church, blah, blah, blah. There's no marga there. Unless there's someone who can actually point you. So, well, actually there is, and this is what it looks like. Uh, and there are such folks in um, Catholicism. Unfortunately, they're not exactly, uh, you know, growing on trees, so to speak. Um, I've had the privilege of meeting a few of them in my life, but I had met none of them when I most needed to, which is when I was in high school. And as a result, I'm now wearing Asian clothing. So, it could have turned out differently, but it didn't. But not making any claims, saying from where I am on the mountain, which doesn't really exist, things look more and more and more the same than different. So uh, I think what the Dalai Lama was saying was wherever you are, whatever uh, faith tradition you grow up in, find the marga there. And if you can't, then ask for help. And then maybe you'll need to actually go elsewhere. Sometimes that's the case, and I'm, I'm sure he would never deny that. But find the marga. Okay, well. As always, I admire your patience. Thank you very much.